This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report with me, Norman Swan, on Gadigal land. Tegan is having a well-deserved day off. Today, have you ever been this excited about burping? I was just like, oh my God, it happened. And he was like jumping up and down in the hotel room, yelling about it. It was pretty exciting. An intriguing story about people who cannot burp and the treatment which unlocks their gas, fortunately, in a northern direction. Plus, more evidence that a mother's immune system and maybe infections during pregnancy can be linked to a child's future risk of psychiatric illness or a developmental issue like autism spectrum disorder. And the controversy around the decision by the Therapeutic Goods Administration to allow authorised psychiatrists to prescribe psilocybin, that's the active ingredient of magic mushrooms, and MDMA for treatment-resistant depression and treatment-resistant post-traumatic stress disorder, respectively. Last week on The Health Report, Professor Pat McGorry was highly critical of the charity Mind Medicine Australia, which has been lobbying hard for psilocybin in particular. And I promised to get them on this week to answer the criticisms, some of which, by the way, aren't new. They were aired on Four Corners last year and urge you to watch that show. So to that end, earlier today, I spoke to Peter Hunt, who chairs Mind Medicine Australia. My pleasure. Now, Pat McGorry made the point last week on the health report that psilocybin, in his view, was too risky to study because he'd seen too many young people become psychotic on it. Yeah, I think what Pat's talking about is recreational use. And what we're talking about here is medical use. Firstly, any family history of psychosis is screened out pursuant to the protocols before a person gets access to these therapies. But secondly, if you look through all of the trials, and there have been a large number of them, there is no evidence of psychosis. Given that the Therapeutic Goods Administration has rejected this in the past, what made them accept it this time? I think the wealth of data. I mean, what's been happening, uh, Norman, over the last few years is that more and more universities around the world have been uh, developing trials and the good results have led to for-profit companies also coming in and funding trials. It was really the weight of evidence. And I think what Pat forgets is that the TGA process is a 12-month long process and it's pretty arduous. Our application is on public record. And fortunately, we were able to persuade the TGA that based upon the evidence, these medicines should be rescheduled to schedule eight on a limited stroke restricted basis. Where is the psilocybin going to come from? It's going to come from North America. And we're in the process of finalizing supply arrangements. So there will be a secure supply of psilocybin in this country at GMP medical grade. Is Mind Medicine Australia going to become the sponsor? In other words, the selling agent for these drugs in Australia? We will be the facilitator. Well, it's one thing to be a facilitator. The other is the drugs have got to be sold and distributed. Are yep. you going to be the seller and distributor of psilocybin in Australia? We can't be the distributor. Distribution has to occur through pharmacists with the requisite licenses. My medicine will never, ever get control of the medicines themselves, nor should we. They need to go through the Schedule 8 supply chains which are supply chains that are used all the time in this country. So no, I, I, I understand that, but there's a well, you're talking about well-tried systems. Well-tried systems is that you have a pharmaceutical company that becomes the sponsor. We produce very few drugs in Australia. So virtually every pharmaceutical company in Australia is taking drugs that are being manufactured overseas and then sell them to, yep. you know, they wholesale them to pharmacists and pharmacists then distribute them to the, the community. So I'm not suggesting you're going to become a pharmacist, but are you going to become effectively the pharmaceutical company that brings them in and then distributes them to the pharmacist for ongoing sale? In other words, what the TGA would call a sponsor. 
the medicines will actually be brought in by the pharmaceutical company. What we're doing is making sure that the costs associated with it are properly underwritten and the medicines can be provided as cheaply as possible. In other words, the last thing we want to see are medicines coming into this country with massive margins so that the therapies become unavailable to people on lower income levels. So the pharmaceutical company that produces in the United States will have an office opened here and they'll be the sponsor? Uh, Norman, you, you're just going to have to wait until the announcement comes out in the next few days. I can't actually front run an announcement. Right. But is there a situation where my mention Australia could become the commercial organisation that brings in the drugs and sponsors them through the system? We will never be a commercial organisation. We're a registered charity and we're driven by charitable intent, and that is the alleviation of suffering. But what we do do is we facilitate and we underwrite to ensure that these medicines can come into this country at affordable prices so people can access them. So you'll negotiate the price with the pharmaceutical company? That's correct. When can we expect an announcement about the import and distribution of GMP quality psilocybin? I'm hoping this week, Norman, but as you would understand, nothing is announceable until a deal is signed. Last year's Four Corners, which I'm sure you don't remember with <laughs> pleasant memories, was quite critical of My Medicine Australia, particularly your training scheme and the charges, the $9,000 charge through, I think it's a for-profit part of My Medicine Australia. And people who'd been going through it who complained that A, of the cost and B, that it wasn't an accredited training scheme. And I think well over 200 psychiatrists have gone through your training scheme. Can you just confirm the status of that and the quality assurance that goes on in that training scheme? It's 240 have graduated so far, but that's not just psychiatrists. It's psychotherapists, psychologists. The course itself was stated by Professor David Nutt, who's head of neuropsychopharmacology at Imperial College London and one of the leading experts in these therapies globally, as in quotes, the best course of its kind in the world. The faculty is full of international experts. When you start a new area of medicine, it takes some time for a course to become accredited by university bodies. It just takes time. And that will happen in due course. Now, one of the issues with psilocybin therapy is that it's really the evidence internationally is psilocybin-assisted therapy, that you've actually got to go through a psychedelic experience to obtain the clinical benefit. And psychotherapy, therefore, is a critical part. And the psychotherapy yes. has not been properly evaluated. That's one issue. And the other issue is that it's impossible to have a placebo-controlled trial because you've got to have a psychedelic experience to actually get the benefit. But microdosing probably doesn't work. The microdosing, I think you're, you're right, by itself doesn't work. There's a number of myths that have been pushed around about these therapies. And the one is that there's not a lot of trial evidence. When you actually go back and look at psilocybin, there are a significant number of trials. I think there were nearly 2,000 people went through trials prior to prohibition. Since starting again in the early 2000s with research, you've again seen a large number of trials take place. So if this argument that there's not data around that, it, that can actually assist you prove efficacy is a nonsense. And the TGA went through the data painstakingly and also engaged an expert panel to do exactly the same thing. And what about the psychotherapy aspect of it? That's considered essential. It is essential, and psychotherapy has been used in virtually all of the trials to date. The standardised protocol for the psychotherapy rather than them doing whatever they feel like? Yes, I mean, the, the protocols may vary slightly, but they follow a common theme. Now, do you believe this can be delivered by psychiatrists using telehealth? You know, I, I don't pretend to be a clinician, so all I can do is talk to psychiatrists and get their views. And what they tell me is that they think that the screening process 
can be done through telehealth. So you'll see if you can qualify for treatment-resistant depression, but the actual treatment itself by the psychiatrist needs to be face-to-face. Absolutely. It has to be done in a medically controlled environment with two therapists in the room at all times. Are you worried just finally that this could open the floodgates? No, because it won't open the floodgates. What we are talking about doing is sponsoring a university to establish a registry to get real-time information back from psychiatrists and their patients about how they're going with the treatments. But I don't think it's going to start in a big way. It'll start slowly and cautiously and then expand based upon results. Peter, thanks very much for joining us on the Health Board. My pleasure. Peter Hunt is Chair of Mind Medicine Australia, and you can hear my interview with Professor Pat McGorry on last week's Health Report podcast. For many years now, there's been a suspicion that a risk factor for schizophrenia is that your mother had a viral infection during pregnancy. Alongside that, there's increasing interest in the role of the immune system in brain development and a growing list of mental health and developmental issues that are related. Well, a new study from Sweden has strengthened the evidence from bipolar disorder to the autism spectrum to self-harm. The lead author was Joseph Isung, a psychiatrist and clinical neuroscientist at the Karolinska Institutet in Stockholm, who, when I spoke to him this morning, told me more about where the evidence came from before he undertook his study, which actually covered more than 40 years. The evidence comes from preclinical studies, mainly. So in animals? Uh, Yeah, in animals, where immune activation during gestation can affect neurobehavioral, neurophysiological, neuroanatomical outcomes in the offspring. And there are a few observational studies that also suggest that some type of immune disruption during gestation or or during labor can affect the outcomes in relation to psychiatric disorders. I mean, there has been evidence for a while from humans, but again, as you say, it's observational that infection in mothers in pregnancy can increase the risk of schizophrenia in their children. Yeah, like the Swedish study many years ago was one of those previous studies. So what did you do in your study? We looked at this rare disorder, primary immunodeficiencies, which is associated with recurrent infections, chronic infections, autoimmune diseases. And we wanted to see whether there was a difference in the offspring of individuals with primary immunodeficiencies if they were offspring of mothers or fathers with primary immunodeficiencies. So the theory was, in fact, that if you had an immune deficiency, you were more likely to get infection. And therefore, that was, in a sense a laboratory bed in real life to see whether or not what happened to the children. And you studied everybody in Sweden for 40 years, from 1973 to 2013, and follow their children through. What did you find? We found that there was a small but significant difference in the offspring of mothers as opposed to the offspring of fathers, both for any psychiatric disorders or any suicidal behavior later on in the offspring. And in the fathers, we saw no increased risk at all. And how did you know it was due to the infection rather than, say, the immune deficiency itself? We can't really say. So we believe it aligns with our hypothesis. It could either be infections or it could be the overall auto-reactivity that is associated with primary immunodeficiencies, that is auto-antibodies that can be developed. In other words, an autoimmune disease kind of situation where the body attacks itself. Yeah. This is a broad range of conditions. I mean, you're talking about autism spectrum disorder, bipolar, schizophrenia, suicidal behaviour. Did any of those stand out in terms of the risk or were they all pretty much lumped together? 
we saw a higher risk for bipolar disorder and autism spectrum disorder, but we don't want to draw too much of the conclusions based on individual disorders because there was more of a power issues when, when we looked at individual disorders and it could also be different temporal effects that some disorders might not have enough time to develop, such as schizophrenia, for example. And when you said power earlier, that you mean that the numbers were very small, therefore hard to make conclusions. Joseph, we just lost you there and we've got you back on another line. Is the problem here caused, I mean, some people think that what happens with the immune system is that it's a bit like a gardener pruning the garden and the immune system helps to prune the growing brain. Is that the, the yeah. leading theory about why effects on the immune system in the mother and in pregnancy can affect the growing brain? Yeah, I would say that, yeah, that the immune system and uh, a potential imbalance in the immune system would disrupt the sort of yeah, synaptic pruning or the, the neurodevelopment. Uh, that immune system development is sort of contingent with uh, the development of the central nervous system. And was there any particular infection that led the way as a, a leading association here? Well, not in this context, not with our study. We didn't look at any uh, specific uh, infection. We only looked at primary immunodeficiencies as... Uh, Almost a model. Sort of, yeah, as a model, yeah. Sort of thing. So all you can really say to women who are falling pregnant is just make sure that you're fully vaccinated and take care of yourself. In the meantime, more research is needed. Yeah, exactly. No need to sort of increase worry, but this is more that it strengthens uh, the overall idea that good health during pregnancy is, is of significance, obviously. Yeah. Joseph, thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, okay. Thank you. Dr. Joseph Eisung is a psychiatrist and clinical neuroscientist at the Karolinska Institutet in Stockholm. Now, I'm sure many of you have been told, don't bother searching for your symptoms on the internet. Dr. Google isn't always a reliable source of medical advice. But with me in the studio is Health Report producer Shelby Trainer, who's got a contradiction to that story. Yeah, well, I was wondering first, Norman, have you ever Googled your symptoms on the internet? That's a secret that will die with me. Oh, and, and, and maybe die because I got the wrong advice from Dr. Google. <laughs> well, I spoke to a community who actually didn't just find answers on the internet, they found a cure. Amy's parents knew something strange was going on with their daughter not long after she was born. Basically, every time they would feed me, I would just cry and cry and cry until I threw up. She was a fussy eater, slow to put on weight, and no matter what they tried, they couldn't get her to burp. When you're a kid, you don't really realise that you can't burp other than I mean, other people can kind of make themselves burp as like a party trick and you can't. And that's just like your normal. For me and for most people, I think it gets really bad when you hit that age where you start drinking alcohol, especially beer, just give you a lot of stomach and upper GI gas. And I think that was probably when I realized like, hey, I'm just not burping like I never burp. The inability to burp wasn't Amy's only symptom. I'd feel full easily when I would eat, so you'd kind of eat half a meal and you'd just feel full and want to stop. Or if I'd eat the wrong thing, I'd feel nauseous or vaguely nauseous. I, honestly, I felt sort of nauseous most of the time. She also felt a pressure in her upper stomach and her chest that sometimes escalated to a sharp pain. And then the dinosaur noises are kind of famous. So you just get this feeling of like the air bouncing up and down in your throat. And it makes these kind of frog or dinosaur noises that can get kind of loud. And if you're in a quiet room, can be pretty embarrassing. 
Amy had gone back and forth to doctors for years without an answer. And so after a particularly uncomfortable experience with a fizzy drink, she turned to the internet. So I remember laying on the couch, like hyper salivating and feeling awful and Googling my symptoms and I found the Reddit group. Reddit is a network of communities called subreddits, where people can share anything from news to celebrity gossip to their unresolved medical mysteries. The subreddit Amy had stumbled upon was called No Burp, where dozens of people were sharing their experiences with Amy's exact symptoms. It was a lot of people saying, you know, lay down flat, that helps. And people had some different kind of self-help things they'd tried. Once I kind of got what I was going to get from that group, I just kind of quit going there and sort of forgot about it until the psychologist told me about the podcast she heard. Amy went to see a psychologist for treatment of medical anxiety. She was worried her symptoms would make it impossible for her to do the necessary prep for a colonoscopy. She actually had heard a podcast about this no burp condition, and she was like, I don't think this is a psychological problem. This is an actual problem that's recognised. In the years since Amy last checked in on the No Burp Reddit thread, her condition had been given a name. Retrograde cricopharyngeal dysfunction, or RCPD. I was just like, I cannot believe this. 50 years of people telling me I'm crazy and making this up. And here it is, it has a name. So the first thing I did is I texted my husband and I was like, hey, you know that thing where I can't burp? It actually is a real thing. It has a name and they can treat it with by Botoxing your esophagus. And he just immediately responded in all caps, do it, <laughs> with like 10 exclamation points. The man who gave the condition its name is Dr. Robert Bastian, who had become something of a celebrity in the Reddit community. I am a tertiary care laryngologist, voice swallowing airway, and so I think I've run into lots and lots of different very unusual things. And when I was first contacted about this, I had never heard of it and never seen a patient to my knowledge. Burping is a normal human function. I would imagine many of your listeners would say, well, I don't really burp that much. But if they pay attention, they'll discover they burp more than they think they do. When a person can't burp, they progressively kind of pump themselves full. The esophagus becomes stretched because it's full of air that can't be released upwards. The air goes down into the stomach. Now the stomach becomes overly full of air. Then the air eventually passes into the small intestine and into the large intestine. And finally, it's in the descending colon. And so every part of the GI tract is stretched and overfilled with air. And that is the source of every symptom. Dr. Bastian's first experience with this condition was in 2015. A man emailed him desperate for answers. He'd never been able to burp, and despite having undergone a battery of tests, he still didn't have a diagnosis or a solution. Dr Bastian had one more proposal. He should get Botox injected into his esophagus. My thinking at that time is that it would be a diagnostic test. I wanted to prove 
that the issue was that his aporosophageal sphincter wouldn't let go to let him burp. I kind of remember thinking to myself, if this works, then his permanent solution will be a, a surgical solution. It'll be a myotomy, a surgical procedure in which you divide the ring-like muscle and turn it from an O into a U. Dr. Bastian's original theory was that the Botox would wear off in three to six months, and the symptoms, including the inability to burp, would return. So surgery would be necessary for long-term results. To my surprise, he and several other of the early group seemed to continue burping after six months. And I thought, well, how can that be? It's not yet known what causes RCPD, but one suggestion is that it's a failure very early on for the person to learn how to burp. It's unclear whether it's genetic or simply a physical anomaly. How do you explain that a person who's 18 or 30 or even 60 who says, I've never, ever been able to burp to my memory? How would you explain that a single injection of a medication that is only going to last for three to six months how would you explain that that fixes the problem? But I can't fathom how that could be unless there's a, a learning component or a sort of physical response. I called Bastion immediately and was like, hey, can I do a consult? I'm coming into town. Amy traveled 10 hours to Chicago to receive the Botox injection. It can be injected into the muscle through the side of the neck, but most of Dr. Bastian's patients receive it under anesthesia via the mouth. The Botox is injected into the cricopharyngeal muscle, and within a few days, the burps begin. So the first one actually happened the night after I got Botox, which is like really fast. Most people don't get it that fast. But my husband and I were in the hotel room. We'd driven halfway home that night. And when it happened, he was I was just like, oh, my God, it happened. And he was like jumping up and down in the hotel room, like yelling about it. It was pretty exciting. You want to see how you can harness those burps. So you're looking for a head position or a lowering of the larynx, like when you yawn and you figure out what can I do to make these burps that are going to happen no matter what I do, it's going to happen. But what can I do to make that burp happen faster, louder, bigger? So what's the story in Australia? RCPD is being treated by a handful of specialists here. One of them is Sydney doctor Santosh Sanagapali. Probably about three years ago, I first had a patient come to me with this condition. By coincidence, I, I had actually uh, read about it just prior to her seeing me. She was very excited to hear that I had actually heard of the disorder because I think she'd seen multiple specialists in the past who had sort of dismissed her and, and didn't believe that there was anything wrong with her. Dr. Sanagapali has adopted a manometry test to confirm the diagnosis of RCPD rather than just going off self-reported symptoms. This esophageal manometry is a test where we measure the pressures within the esophagus uh, using a little probe that we put down into the stomach. And I basically challenge these patients by giving them something that would be really hard for them to drink, which, which is a fizzy drink. 
normally when we drink fizzy drinks, we, we burp a lot. And in these patients, it becomes very clear what's happening because we see a huge buildup of pressure in their esophagus. And the special muscle at the top of the esophagus called the cricopharyngeus, we can see during the manometry test, it doesn't relax and open up, which is what happens in normal people, which allows them to burp. Dr. Bastian, however, doesn't undertake any diagnostic tests, which he admits might be controversial to some. If you need to design the manometry to prove the diagnosis, but you have this ironclad syndromic diagnosis already, in other words, do I need a fancy photometer to tell me that this wall in front of me is green? The first many hundred people that I treated had undergone everything known to man, but none of them received a diagnosis, and yet all of them were easily diagnosed using the diagnostic syndrome. To prove it manometrically is very lovely, and it's quite important for people to do that to add to the literature so that the understanding of other doctors is deeper. But for the individual patient, I think it's quite optional, but again, that will be a source of ongoing discussion. I do understand um, why he's averse to doing diagnostic tests, but I think it is important to do it and to make sure that it's not something else that's mimicking the condition as well. Some of the symptoms of RCPD can overlap with other conditions, and it can be difficult for even patients themselves to pinpoint what's going wrong. The experience of being dismissed by doctors only adds to the stress. I did not get Botox treatment until I was 50 years old. So by the time I got treated, I had so many different layers of anxiety about the whole thing. It has been over a year since Amy received the Botox injection and she's still burping. By Dr. Bastian's standards, she's considered cured. I am amazed at how little gas regular people have because they just burp it out when it happens. I am way more comfortable. My clothes fit better. I've gotten like way more adventurous about what I eat. My life is, is definitely better. For many people, they avoid searching their symptoms on the internet for good reason. With just a couple of clicks, a tickle in the throat can turn terminal. But for the no burpers out there, Googling their symptoms has gotten them treatment they might never have had. Dr. Sanagapali says it shows the positive potential of the internet. The story is also humbling for medical practitioners that we don't know everything and there are always new things to be discovered and new things to learn about. I love the idea that people can find a thing that is rare and unusual and unknown and then go take it to their physician. And I always say, find a physician who will listen to you and who, who won't uh, blow you off. Yeah, I just think doctors are often not comfortable admitting they don't know and, you know, trying things out. So what was really amazing to me is that this first doctor said, you know what, I've never heard of that, but I've got this Botox treatment, let's try it out. 
Well, that was Amy finishing that amazing story by Shelby Trainer. Well done, Shelby. And just a word of warning, the Botox is not entirely straightforward, not something to try at home. And you need to talk to somebody who's done it a lot before you do it. Now, Shelby, you've been digging into the ice bag about the mail that we've had, a lot of mail we've had from last week's ice bath experience. Yeah, the mail bag. Yes. Lots of people questioning your sanity, to be honest. To explain for those who didn't hear it, I did an ice bath course. There are some people that do agree with you, though. There's Leslie from Newcastle. She says the past two years she's been doing it. Um, she goes for, a, for into the surf midwinter for a few minutes and says it's a great circuit breaker. She even did it in Ireland, which is interesting. And cold. Very cold. And then we've got Casper, who is of Finnish descent, and he suggested you should go from a sauna to an ice bath. Maybe not. Mm, but no. thank you for your mailbag. Please keep your mail coming in. That's the health report for this week. Shelby and Tegan will be back next week because it's International Women's Day. See you then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.